It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us, thank you so much for being with us. If you would open your Bibles to Colossians, the third chapter. We won't have slides tonight, so I want to encourage you to open your Bible, and we'll look at the end of Colossians, the third chapter. Uh, Do keep in mind to uh, be very diligent in your efforts this week for uh, the preparation of Friends Day. What a wonderful opportunity it is for us to invite our friends and and to let them know that we want them to be here anytime they can, but we care enough about them to, to have a day of emphasis, to really encourage them to be here. And when they're coming, we're going to have a delicious meal for them. We are going to have, hopefully, a, a worship service that, that they'll understand, that they'll appreciate, and hopefully would encourage them to come back and learn more of God's will. Be sure you're prayerful uh, as you make your invitation. Be sure you make your invitation in a genuine way. Let them know you really want them to be here. Be sure that as you arrive, if, if you're healthy and it's no problem for you, uh, drop off your food and, and park a long ways away and let's leave as many places around the building that we can uh, as far our visitors. And of course, if that's not best for you, everybody understands that. Be sure that you get out your best recipes. I've heard so many of you talk over the last few weeks about how excited you are to have uh, the old-fashioned dinner on the ground, that potluck setting, and i got to admit to you, I'm pretty excited about that also. I might fast all this week and get ready for that. But uh, let's make sure that we bring plenty and that, that we uh, bring enough not only for us but for the guests that everybody's inviting, and let's... Be prayerful that this will make an eternal difference in the lives of others. Isn't it exciting to hear the announcements about uh, detailed plans being made for Vacation Bible School, for a stateside mission trip, for the youth mission trip, and the many other things that are taking place. Let's make sure that this summer that we invest our time and our energy and whatever opportunities God gives us to spread His gospel across the southeast. God has blessed us richly. Tonight, we look at a topic that in many aspects, it's not an easy topic to study. You know, there's some parts of the Bible that just hits us in places that's not easy to obey. There's some parts of the Bible that those very verses apply to situations that we find ourselves in, not just every week, but almost every day of every week. If you're still in the workplace, I want you to go into the study tonight with an open mind to say, I simply want to know what is the will of God for me as I enter into the workplace tomorrow. And instead of us trying to hide behind excuses or giving some kind of spin in man's philosophy, let's just simply take the Word of God and ask God, what is your will for me as I am an employee in this particular setting of which I work? Now, before we go into that, I want to remind you of the things that led up to Colossians, the end of the third chapter, which is where we're studying. Really, much of what we can be brought to began in Colossians, the second chapter. If you'll remember back in 11 and 12, he talked about in Colossians 2 how we need to be buried in Christ. Remember, it was the surgery without hands. We take and we crucify the old man of sin. That is repentance where we say, I'm going to turn from God, from self and from sin, and I'm going to turn to God. Now, when we turn to God, according to Colossians 2 and ver- or Colossians 3 and verse 4, we're making Christ our life. 
when Christ who is our life shall appear. And that's our theme throughout this whole study here. And so as this story unfolds, we see individuals that have crucified the old man of sin and they've made that turn to Christ. They have been baptized into Christ and there their sins were washed away. They come in contact with the blood of Jesus Christ and there we are resurrected with Christ. Now we're living a life in Christ, in Christ in us. And now things are going to be very different from us for what it was previously, but also things are going to be very different from us than others that are not Christians. You see what's happening here, the groundwork that Paul is laying. And I want you to keep in mind, this isn't David Shannon's spin. This is what Paul is, is laying out here. And he's going to get to these servants and to these bond servants. And what he's leading to is he's saying, now that you have been risen with Christ. See there in the third chapter in verse 1, if then you were raised with Christ, you seek those things which are above. Verse 2, you set your mind on things above. Why? Verse 3, you've died. In other words, that man that lived the way he wanted to live is dead. And now what happens in verse 4? Christ who is our life appears and that's going to change everything when Christ is our life we go into verse 18 and wives are going to live differently than what they otherwise would have lived at home husbands are going to live differently at home Children are going to live differently at home when Christ is their life. Fathers, and implied no doubt mothers, will live differently at home when Christ is their life and so now we've taken care of what many think about is the spiritual aspect, that being salvation. But Paul writes and says, listen, that doesn't just affect that. It affects your home. And then he takes it into a whole nother dimension and he says in the verses we're going to study tonight, that also affects you at the workplace. Now let's put a pause right there. In just a moment, we'll come right back to that same place. If I were to ask you right now, how do you define spiritual aspects of life versus secular aspects of life. You know, you hear terms like that real often where people talk about the secular aspect of their life or, or sometime in relation to that conversation, they also talk about their spiritual aspect of life. Someone said, what's, what's a spiritual event? Someone might say, well, being baptized into Christ is a spiritual event. They might say attending a Bible class or a worship service like this is a spiritual event. You say, okay, what's a secular event? And they might say, well, uh, going to a ball game or going to a workplace or going to a community project. Those are secular events. Somebody says, well, what kind of careers are secular careers and, and what careers are spiritual careers? Someone says, well, a missionary has a spiritual career. A minister of some type or a preacher has a, a spiritual career. But then the list would be long that someone might say, well, these in, in the field of industry or medicine or technology or, or you name it, of those type, those, those are careers that are much more, sec, much more secular in nature. What about places? Well, I, I believe a church building would lend itself to a spiritual Keep in mind, I'm just answering these things as might be common answers. I'm not saying these are the right answers, okay? Well, I believe a church building might be much more of a, a spiritual place than, say, for example, our home, our workplace. Isn't it interesting that the Bible never does that? God never communicates to us as Christians and says, I want you to think about the difference in the secular and the spiritual. Now let's challenge our thinking here. God says you can't distinguish the two. I want Christ 
to become your life. If you're going to be spiritual, you be spiritual 24-7. You be spiritual in every event that you attend. You be spiritual in whatever career that you choose. You be spiritual in whatever place that you go to. But tonight, as we begin, I want to challenge all of us, and especially if you're struggling with this, to really deal with it, struggle with it, go through it. Because those that believe that Christianity is some kind of Sunday event, it's some kind of church event, are those that have a hard time ever finding a way to live the Christian life at home, but especially at the workplace. But when I realized that what God has called us to be is individuals that have repented, we've crucified the old man of sin, and we've been baptized with Christ, and we have raised now so that Christ is our life all the time. We go into worship because Christ is our life. We go home and we live a different life for Christ all the time because Christ is our life. And we go into the workplace and we live different in the workplace than what other people from the world live in the workplace because Christ is our life. And friends, what I challenge you tonight at the beginning of this lesson as we study through to see if this is not the truth. God expects no matter what your career is, if it is a career that does not uh, defy godliness, that you ought to be able to go into that career and that it ought to be a spiritual career for you. In other words, you are a spiritual person and you're going there for the light of Jesus Christ to shine through. And so if Christ is our life, once we have become a Christian, we'll never enter into any place the same. That's before we became a Christian. Every place and every opportunity will become a spiritual opportunity for us to live the life of Christ while we're there. We're only pilgrims. We don't know how long we have in the workplace of which we are today. Forty days or forty years, we don't know. But the question is, for however long we're there, Will we be spiritual people in that place? Paul writes to those that were bondservants or slaves. And by the way, that would have covered, according to historians, about half of the population of that day. So he's not writing to some kind of just real tiny minority group here. He's writing to many people that are considered very much a second-class rate citizen, and he's bringing them up to great status, as he's already said in Galatians, the third chapter, in verse 28, that there's no longer Jew nor Gentile, but there's no longer slave or free man, just like there's no longer the uh, male or female. So what he's done is he's brought up the essence or worth. He's brought up the importance of every individual on an equal plane, but that's still doesn't change the fact that we're at different places in our life. And so he writes to these individuals to say, here's what God wants you to be. Let's begin reading Colossians, the third chapter. Notice what he says in 22. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. The very first thing that he tells the bond servants, he doesn't give them an interview to see what kind of master they have. 
Now that ought to stand out as profound in our mind. Instead, he says, I want to tell you what it ought to be pretty much unconditionally. I want you to obey. Now that's the same commandment that he gave just a few verses earlier to the children when he told them to obey. Now you remember last Sunday night, we tried to paint what might be and I believe is a reality in our American culture where we have completely changed the appreciation for what God has given us. God has given by His design the beauty of submissiveness. And I emphasize the aspect of beauty of it. Cultures are blessed when people are submissive in that culture. Our lives individually are blessed when we appreciate the opportunity to be submissive to those that have authority over us. But somewhere in America, we've lost this, and we've painted an image that kind of bows your back and says, I won't submit to anybody. Nobody tells me what to do. And so children grow up in some homes where they are never expected to submit to the authority of their parents. They go into schools with the mindset of, I'll get by with anything I can get by with, instead of a mindset that says, I want to submit to authority. They enter into the workforce. Now as adults, think how many people that we have worked around and you work around even at the present day that they could care less for the idea of authority. All they want to know is what can I get by with. Instead, Paul writes to them and says, I want you to obey. The word obey in its root means to listen. So he's telling them, I want you to listen to what the master is asking for you. So as we apply this to an employer and employee relationship, God is saying he wants you and I to enter into the workforce tomorrow morning or whatever time that that may be, and he wants us to listen to what's expected of us. But then, after listening, there needs to be a submissive response. It's not enough to just listen. That's not the definition of obedience. Listen is the root, but then to act upon that is the rest of the idea of obedience. To act in humble obedience. To obey. Now, be turning, if you will, over to Matthew, the 21st chapter, and we see an example in the Scriptures to realize that the idea of disobeying authority is not something the 21st uh, new to the 21st century, but we see that it's been happening for a long time. And the truth is, you and I know that it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. But you know, there's really two types of disobedience if we wanted to break it into major areas. And notice here, we have a father that wants his sons to go out and work in the vineyard. And so we have a relationship of authority that is a, a father, but we also have him as being one that is working his sons. And notice both disobeyed, but notice how it was totally different in their disobedience. Let's read this, Matthew 21st chapter, beginning verse 28. But what do you think? Matthew 21, 28. A man had two sons. He came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, this is a son answering, he answered and said, I will not. But afterwards he regretted it and he went. The King James there would say he repented. So that's that turn, it's that change. Verse 30. Then he came, talking about the father, he came to the second son and said, likewise. And that son answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. 
And then Jesus drives home a lesson here. Say, which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, the first. Jesus said to them, as surely as I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you, for John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, you did not afterwards relent and believe him. And so there you see the application in the last few verses. But something stands out profound for us. In other words, Jesus uses an illustration that they would have understood very well to make that spiritual point. But let's go back to the illustration that's that physical parable, if you will, that we too can understand today. We had two sons here that disobeyed. Notice one disobeyed in open rebellion. The father, the authority comes by and says, go, and he says to his face, I won't obey you. Now later he repented of that. He was sorrow, sorrow, godly sorrow that leads us to change. That's what he experienced. But then he goes to the other son, and there's that, there's that quiet, secret, disobedience to the face do you notice there he even called him sir to the face he even said yes I'll obey sir but then as soon as the father walked away he found other places to go except where the father told him to go we've all seen that in the workplace a type that's open rebellion you can't make me do anything And it takes a pink slip threat to even get an individual to think about obeying the authority. Or we've seen the other extreme. The ones that they try to make the employer think that they are the best worker that's ever been, but yet they'll get out of everything that they could possibly get out of. What does God say to us if we're spiritual? If we're spiritual, back in our text of Colossians 3, he says, I want you to obey. But then he says a standard of this obedience. And this is interesting how he brings it to terms that they're not outdated at all. And the application is right on the money even today. And see, that shows us how little our human nature has changed. The Bible's not outdated. Did you notice at the uh, end of 22... He says, I don't want you to do this because of eye service as men pleasers. But instead, he says, I want you to do it in sincerity of heart because of your fear for God. We've all seen individuals that they keep their eye out for the supervisor or for the employer. And they make sure that when that individual comes by, they look real busy because they're only doing it so that the eye of the man will be impressed. They want to please men Only an eye service. And God says, I don't want you to be a hypocrite. I want you to be sincere when you go into the workplace. I want you to work remembering that you're doing this as it is unto the Lord. In other words, because you fear God. You seen people do things because they fear being fired? Oh, I'm afraid what they can do to me. Now, God, I might have misunderstood. Let's make sure this is real clear. And keep in mind, I don't agree with this terminology, but the way people think. Let's put it in the way people think. God, you don't understand. I don't have a spiritual job. So I'm sure that since I don't have a spiritual job, you're not going to make me give an account on the day of judgment for the way I worked at a place that has nothing to do with spiritual living. 
Paul's saying, you've missed it. Completely wrong. If you're a Christian, your job just became a spiritual job. And yes, you will give an account for how you work in your workplace. Okay, God, I'm getting the picture. What's the account going to be based upon? One thing. Did you obey? Did you obey? You listen and respond to what was asked. Did you obey? Now, if you need the motive, the motive is not because men are watching, but because your heart... You see, that's getting to our life, being a, Christ being our life. Our heart is up on God. For that we fear. Standing before God on the day of judgment and giving an account for how we rebelled against authority. Friends, the the underlying theme of this last part of the third chapter is it's almost like Paul is grabbing my shoulders and your shoulders and giving us just a quick shake to say, I'm trying to show you how important it is to God that we be submissive, that we be obedient people. And it's a beautiful thing that man has a way of warping it out of context and trying to paint it into an ugly monster. Let's notice verse 23. doesn't change the topic. He just takes this and rewords it and really makes it, if it could go a little deeper, he almost takes it a little deeper. Look at 23, Colossians, the third chapter. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. So he uses kind of the same terms. He says, do it heartily. In other words, Ecclesiastes 9 and 10 would say, whatever your hands find to do, do it with all of your might. So from the old Bible to the new Bible, God wanted us to be diligent people because when we work, we represent God if we're spiritual people. And so I can't go into the workplace and say, well, this is not a spiritual place. It's not a spiritual career. So I have no spiritual responsibility. God is saying, no, you have that spiritual responsibility. Go in with a heart that's devoted to God and obey and do it with all of your might. Because if we're going to let our light so shine before men, where does the light shine the brightest? Let's go back to that analogy. Is is this where God meant for things to be spiritual? Well, yes. Is this the only place God meant for things to be spiritual? It's wonderful that your light can shine. That's an encouragement to me. And if my light can shine, it's an encouragement to you. So we're supposed to shut out the light, the spiritual light, whenever we leave here. And Monday morning we're going to work. And because it's not a spiritual place, we don't have to let our spiritual light shine. How's Christianity going to grow if we shut our light off when we're in the dark world? You know, I pray. And I've heard you pray oftentimes. Lord, help this church to be a light to this community. Well, guess what? The light that is glowing right now is a good example for people driving by, but it doesn't have a lot of direct influence on anybody unless you're visiting with us tonight. So how and when will the Mount Juliet Church of Christ have the greatest effect upon other people in this community? And that is when we go to work and when we go to school tomorrow. And so all of a sudden, our work and our school has become spiritual labor. And God says, I want you to do it heartily. 
And I want you to do it as if you were devoted to me. You're going to work for me. You know, when we think about the challenges in the workplace of simply getting people to do their job, we ought to recognize immediately that that should never be the challenge for an employer that has a Christian employee. Because we're going to work for the greatest master that's ever been. And we're going to work for the greatest paycheck that has ever been offered. Let's read about this paycheck. Read a little deeper. Colossians, the uh, third chapter. Let's read in 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve Christ. Do you see how these three verses are unfolding? Again, it goes back to the day of judgment. You mean my reward in heaven could be based yes or no upon how I conducted myself in a workplace that I thought on this earth was only a secular workplace. And God's saying, that's right. That's right. We go to work not for the end of a pay period check, but we go to work because we're spiritual people to let the spiritual light shine because one day we'll stand on the day of judgment and we will see the impact that our Christian lives had on a secular world about us. And you think how many people we don't even know that we've touched their lives. If any of you are faithful Christians, you've heard these words because you don't have to work six months at a place if you're a faithful Christian to hear these words. Hey, where do you go to church? Not Juliet Church Christ. Oh. I knew you went somewhere because I've not heard you swear and you've not lied and you do your work. I knew you went to church somewhere. How many people have been impacted by Christian workers? They're watching. And it stands out. And the idea that we would go in and invite someone to a friend's day, the most effective part of the invitation that you'll make this week to your co-workers, you've already made it for the past 51 weeks. If you've worked just like the rest of the world, your invitation will not have very much effect. But if we have let our light so shine before men, we have been spiritual in nature as we have gone from home to church to the community to the workplace, that stands out so the individuals see that and say, I want a life like that. I want to have that kind of effect on other people's lives. I want what that person has. You're inviting me to Friends Day? I would love to go because I want to see what your life is all about. And so Paul writes, and he gives us a spiritual lesson on our secular work that we would never gather from any place except God's Word. But let's notice this last verse in 25, and then as we go to the first verse, But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. You work for somebody that's unfair? These servants had masters that were unfair. God told them to obey them. And he says, don't worry. Your master will pay their punishment. 
He goes back to the end of Romans, the 12th chapter, and the beginning of the 13th chapter, of letting God seek the vengeance. It's not our place to not do our job simply because we think the master's not fair. We still obey because we're not working for that master. We're working for the Lord. It's just like when he talked to wives, you submit to your husband, not because who your husband is. Notice back there in verse 18, but because who your Lord is. Tell children to obey in all things, not because who their parents were, but because who their God is. He tells us, servants, go into your workplaces, work, not because who your master is, but because who your Lord is. Now, you've got a master that's unfair, you have an employee that's unfair, don't worry. You don't have to seek the vengeance. They'll pay for that on the day of judgment. God will settle all the accounts. And then he speaks to the masters. Look in the fourth chapter in verse 1. Masters, give your bond servants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. In other words, deal in a righteous manner with them, and if not, you'll one day have authority over you that you cannot deny. And that'll be on that day of judgment. In just a moment, we're going to extend the invitation, but I want to close out this lesson with this plea to you. It goes almost without fail when this topic is covered that someone very seriously says, Preacher, you don't realize the work environment that I have. It is impossible to live a spiritual life where I work. I want to beg you tonight, to reconsider that thought. Maybe you could repent, and by the strength of Jesus Christ, with Christ being your life, maybe you could live a Christian life in that environment. By the way, the very next verse, verse 2, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant, that's watchful, in it with thanksgiving. That may be the place to start, is to be prayerful about our workplace and about our example. But here's the second thing. It may be that for you, it is impossible for you to live a Christian life where you're working. And I would encourage you to quit that job as soon as you can. Oh, you don't understand the retirement I've got building. I only have to work X number more years and I'm going to retire. But you can't live a Christian life there. No, I can't live. Think about that, what that's saying. From the verses we just studied, I'm willing to sacrifice my soul to make sure that I get a retirement when I'm 65. What a foolish gamble. I would say that practically everybody in this room for the right amount of pay increase would change jobs. I would say the difference in hell and heaven is an increase worth changing jobs. People change jobs in this world every day for all kinds of reasons, and there's no better reason to change a job than to make sure we're working where we can be a faithful Christian. You see, if I've convinced myself that Christianity is just a spiritual thing and that there's a whole lot of the rest of life that's secular, I've missed the whole concept of Christianity we're extending the Lord's invitation now, and it's open for you to become a spiritual person in every aspect of your life. You won't walk into an area of life after you become a Christian that's not a spiritual area of life. You won't have a day in your life that's not a spiritual day. It's a big commitment, but it's the best life that we can live on earth. 
And it's the only life that will let us spend an eternity with God. It's not something to be casual about, but it is definitely something to give our life about. If you've never been baptized into Christ, or if you have, and straight away, and you need to respond to this invitation, won't you come while we stand, while we sing?